though my point is libertarians often say that oh well, libertarians believe in private property rights it's like well not exactly because every system believes in property rights it's just our rules are different mm. well our rules are just more consistent like mm. every system accepts murder should be illegal theft should be illegal except for when the state does it <laughs> mm -hmm. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Stephen Kinsella, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you. Um, it's been a while since we talked. I think last time we were talking about Hoppe's book, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And um, today you have published a book. Uh, when did you published this. It's titled Legal Foundations of a Free Society. When, when did that go? To uh, just, a couple, just a couple of months ago. Okay, great. So we're recording in December 2023, so like October something? Uh, I think, uh, well, I presented uh, September like 21st at the Property and Freedom Society in Turkey is where I presented the first uh, copies. So it was late September. Nice. Well, it is excellent from what I've read so far. Um You've definitely done a thorough job of making the libertarian case. And I thought we would start today, and this is one of those areas where I find myself saying it's incredibly obvious, but then when I've tried to argue this point with other people, they don't find it as obvious. When This, this concept of individual self-ownership, 
Mm-hmm. And I say something as straightforward as like, well, okay, move my left arm and like no one else can do it. And oh, I can move my left arm. Like it is my willpower that's attached to my body, which implies that I own myself. And it's it's like your inalienable private property, right? You can't even trade it away. You can't trade away willpower over your body. Um, and so you're, I thought we'd start in your chapter four, which is titled how we come to own ourselves, because this seems to be really the, 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 the basis of libertarian philosophy, right? It's just each yes. human owns themselves and that's the way it is. Let's acknowledge that reality and act accordingly. Um, so I'll, I'll read your opening lines here, uh, unless you have any comments before we jump in. No, go ahead. Okay. So you start the chapter by writing, the primary social evil of our time is lack of respect for self-ownership rights. It is what underlies both private crime and institutionalized crime perpetrated by the state. State laws, regulations, and actions are objectionable just because the state is claiming the legal right to control how someone else's body is to be used. When the state drafts a man or threatens him with imprisonment if he violates its narcotics laws, for example, it is assuming partial control of his body, contrary to his self-ownership rights. Moreover, laws such as tax laws or fines for failure to comply with arbitrary state decrees, e.g. economic regulations, anti-discrimination rules, also violate self-ownership rights to the extent they threaten to imprison or harm the body of the person, and in any case violate the person's derivative property rights in the expropriated resources. After all, Although self-ownership is more fundamental than rights in external resources, one must own one must own oneself, one's body, in order to own other things. Self-ownership is rendered meaningless if the right to own private property in external resources is not also respected. This is why Rothbard insisted that all human rights are property rights. That is, ownership rights in scarce resources whether self-ownership rights in one's body or property rights in external objects. Um, Long excerpt to get started there. And this, I think, really reminded me of Ayn Rand's phrase, which I will paraphrase. She said something like, the only human right is the right to life. Their only, only proper implementation is private property. Um, because a, a, a property is the means by which we sustain life, right? If a man doesn't have the capacity to control the products of his effort, then he cannot sustain his own life, something like that. Yeah. Therefore, he isn't a slave. So there's this deep connection between ownership over exter- external resources as the means to sustaining one's life, which is founded on the idea that the individual owns themselves, as you've laid out here. So really, all human rights, as Rothbard says, as Rand says, are derivative of property rights in some fundamental fashion. Yes. So I would say I would say this way. Um, um, all rights are property rights, which means that rights are the exclusive right to control 
a resource over which there could be conflict because the purpose mm-hmm. of rights is to prevent conflict mm-hmm. and they and, and the scarce resource can include your body mm-hmm. so i would say that rights just are property rights that's what they are mm-hmm. they're allocation rights um but among those rights the right to self ownership or which which is just a metaphorical or a, a slightly uh slightly sloppy way of saying right to the right to own your body, the scarce resource of your body. I say that's primary because mm. all rights inhere in the individual, the person, and the person is the person that is bound up with the body. So there's an inextricable link between mm. yourself and your body. <clears throat> so if you own external resources, that presupposes you own yourself, your your, mm-hmm. your body, because if you don't own your body in the first place and have freedom to move about and to do things, you can't control and own other things too. So those are always secondary. Um, the way I look at this is this political philosophy of liberty has evolved and is, and, and is it, it starts with more metaphorical and intuitive uh, ideas. And then when we, we're faced with, with uh, difficult areas or with we're forced with the need to clarify, we have to clarify the concepts. So like as a baseline level, Everyone sort of intuitively understands, like, like even a dog understands that this bowl of food is mine, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And people intuitively are going to protect their own bodies, and then they're going to protect the the, the things they've gathered, their food and their, right. their little hut or their cave or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and people will tend to keep their distance, especially if we live in a social a social society, a social um, among in society with other people who. Are doing their own thing, but we, we work with each other, we live with each other. So these sort of respect for each other's boundaries emerges naturally, but you don't have a big intellectual apparatus behind it. And so over time, the idea of liberty emerges, freedom or liberty. And that's just the natural bristling people have when other people interfere with our own pursuits in our lives. And they tend to do that with physical force, invading or using our own bodies or other objects that we've accumulated. So this idea of liberty emerges. That's why libertarianism has the word liberty in it, Mm. because liberty is this vague idea that we all have a sphere of freedom, we call it, that we need to operate within. And then, but then the problem is you realize that the the term liberty is not fundamental because if two people have a, a, a serious dispute over something like, I don't know, abortion rights or land border between their property or who owns this thing or if I hurt you, how much money do I owe you? Our liberty sort of conflicts in a way and someone has to make a decision. And so then we come up with these rules in the legal system based upon intuitions and justice and previous decisions and customs and things like this um, to define what liberty is. And over time, so we'll say something like your right to swing your nose, which is like a liberty, a liberty right ends where, I mean, I'm sorry, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. Uh-huh. Okay, so now we're saying I have I have liberty, which means the right to use my property as I see fit, unless it interferes with your liberty. Mm-hmm. But it's not really interfering with your liberty. It's, it's, it's using your property. So in a way, it all boils, boils down to property rights. Mm-hmm. Now, Iran recognized this in a sense, and the the early radical modern libertarian movement recognized it by elevating this idea of aggression. So we, we focus on this idea of aggression um, as the only way to violate rights, which implies that 
the only rights are to control the physical resources because aggression is the use of physical force against someone. But you can only use physical force against tangible material objects. You can't use it against ideas or reputation or thoughts. You can only physically grapple with and interfere with things in a physical way. That's how we operate in this physical world. Mm -hmm. So over time, the idea developed that the say with Ayn Rand, the only rights are the rights to be free from what some people call coercion, which I think is slightly inaccurate, but from aggression, which is the initiation, and I'll get in a second why she said initiation, but the initiation of physical force against someone else or their property. But you see how even that definition depends upon a more fundamental definition of property because it, if two people are fighting over a given resource with force, you don't know who's in the right unless you know who owns the resource. So you have to consult a property allocation scheme first to know who's the aggressor. If two people are fighting, mm. you know, if I'm punching you, maybe I have the right to do it because you started attacking me first and I'm defending myself. Right. right? So you have to have a, an assignment of rights first. So I guess what I'm getting at is this. I Rand had a sort of idiosyncratic way of using terms and one term she used um was um was uh an the axiom so usually the word axiom is means in like in mathematics or a formal logical system it's a arbitrary postulated starting point so we're going to we're going to assume as an axiom that we start from here we we build from there mm -hmm. ayn rand used the word axiom to mean something a little bit different she sort of used it to mean an incontestable truth mm -hmm. which in Kantian or Misesian terms, we would say an a priori truth. It, it just means something that's it would be self-contradictory to deny, so we know it's true. We, uh -huh. So it's, it's an undeniable truth. Uh -huh. So she used this word axiom as like a starting principle that we know is true. So originally, people started talking about the non-aggression axiom. You don't hear that used that much anymore because that 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 usage in my experience has faded. But in the beginning, the Randians would talk about the, or, or some neo-Randians would talk about, or some early libertarians about the non-aggression axiom. I think even Rothbard uses that terminology. Nowadays, we say non-aggression principle or NAP, right? Or some people, people they say ZAP, zero aggression principle. Mm -hmm. But what they're saying is libertarianism is about the non-aggression principle. But if you think about it, aggression just means, I mean, really the word just means physical fighting, right? Which mm -hmm. is two people battering each other with their bodies. So if you say non-aggression principle is the root of libertarianism, to my mind, what non-aggression principle means is self-ownership. Because if you say you can't commit aggression, it means the other person owns their body, right? Mm -hmm. That's the reason that you can't use their body without their permission is because they own it. Right. So to my mind, when you say NAP, it's just another way of saying everyone owns their body. Mm -hmm. However, in libertarianism, we use the term NAP to include ownership rights in other things too, like your lawn mm. or, you know, your car. Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit awkward to say, you know, if I'm sleeping in my home at night and at 2 a.m. someone walks across my lawn that they've committed a I mean, we, we would say that they're using my property without my consent. As a lawyer or as a libertarian, I would say that's a trespass. Mm -hmm. It's a wrong. It's a violation of my property rights. But to call it aggression is a little bit of a stretch mm -hmm. because- it's not physical force against my body. 
So what we have is we have a case of metonymy, which is a case of using one aspect of an, of an item to describe the whole thing. Right. Right. Um, like someone drinking alcohol, they call it hitting the bottle. They're not really hitting the bottle and the bottle is associated. You know, there's all kinds of terms like that. So the way I think of it is the term non-aggression principle is a shorthand for all of the rights that we have as libertarians, the core one of which is self-ownership. Okay. So that's the fundamental thing. Now, what's important about looking at it like that is it helps you to understand that there is a difference between the types of rights that we have. So the core and the fundamental right is the self-ownership right, which means the right to control your own body, which simply means you have the right to consent or to deny consent to other people using this resource, which is my body. Uh -huh. This is why we can distinguish between consensual sex and and rape. Uh -huh. they, from an external observer looking at the physics of it, they look the same. There's two bodies coming together. Mm -hmm. But from a human action or a praxeological right point of view, we know that the difference is in one case, the the, the one of the parties consented and one did not. And in the other case, that party did not consent. So that's the distinction, right? So that's what rights are. Rights means you rights means that the the person holding the right can either consent or or withholds consent. Mm which means that it can either invite or exclude. So in a sense, all property rights are the right to exclude. They're not really even a right to use, although we can use that terminology, because the right to use, if we say you have the right to having a property right, like let's say I have a property right in my gun. Mm -hmm. That means if I if that if you take this this sort of first level or simplistic approach, if I own my gun, that means I have the right to use my gun. But I don't have the right to use it in any way I want because I can't point it at your at you on standing across the street on your property and shoot you mm -hmm. because that would be violating your property right in your body, right? Mm -hmm. So then you have – well, property rights are limited by other people's property rights. So I have the right to use my gun except when it would hurt you. But but that's not – It's there's no reason to come up with a weird definition and then start having to limit it. <laughs> It'd be better to simply say property rights – are never a right to use. They're simply the right to exclude, mm. which means they're never limited, right? So if I have a gun, that just means I have the right to prevent other people from using it. Mm. Now, as a practical matter, this gives me the ability to use the gun so long as I'm not using other people's property in the process, right? Mm. So if we look at rights as negative only, the right to exclude, you don't have to then say, well, then they're limited. And the good thing about that is then you don't open the door to, say, intellectual property. So, for example, mm -hmm. is in, as I discussed in other chapters of the book and elsewhere, um, the primary problem with intellectual property rights is that there are limitations on other people's, prop mm -hmm. other people's property rights. So, like a patent or copyright gives the holder of this right the, the legal right to prevent other people from using their own resources as they like. Like, so if I have a copyright, I can stop you from using your, your printing press to print a book. Mm -hmm. If I have a patent, I can stop you from using your factory to make an iPhone that's too similar to mine, right? Mm -hmm. So these these IP rights give people the right to limit how you can use your own property. But if you go back to this negative understanding of property, um, uh, uh, 
all property rights are right the right to exclude people from using your resource, which means that's the only thing you can stop people from doing. Mm. You can stop them from performing an action that violates that uses your property. So that in effect gives me like so if I own a home with guns on it, I could do whatever I want so long as those actions don't use other people's property. So if I don't point my gun across at your property, then I can do whatever I want with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the only reason they can step in and limit my actions is if I'm using their resources. But if I'm if I'm making a phone, I'm not using their resources. I'm not committing trespass. Right. If I'm printing a book, again, I'm not using their. I'm not touching their books. I'm not. I'm not invading their property rights. They don't have the right to stop me. Right. So the, that's the fundamental problem with IP rights is that they they give what's called a negative easement or a negative servitude, which is a limitation on my property rights to other people, even though I didn't contractually agree to it. Right. Again. Hmm. Sex is fine if it's consensual. If, if it's not consensual, it's rape. Hmm. Same thing here. A negative servitude is fine if I contractually consent to it. But the patent and copyright just grant these rights to people even though the the person burdened by it never never consented, right? Um, so so the, here's the problem. If you point out that the problem with intellectual property and lots of other laws, by the way, the problem is that they give someone the right to stop you from using your own property, even though you didn't commit any kind of tort and you're not hurting, you're not using their property without the consent. If you view property rights as the right to use with some limitations limited by others' property rights, which is the conventional view, then the, the response to my argument against IP would be, well, yes, you're, you're Stefan, you're correct that um, the patent limits what you can do with your own property. But so what? All property rights are limited by other people's property rights. So you see they have that response because of confusion about the nature of property rights. Mm. Now, of course, you could take that so far. I could say, well, okay, so you could say that why would a woman who's being raped complain? After all, all property rights are limited. I mean, you know, it's just, you could see where this line of thinking makes no sense. And it gets clear once you understand that property rights are just the right to exclude. This is true even of your own body. I mean, I own my body. I don't have the right to swing my fist at your nose because that's an action I don't have the right to do. Another way to see this is to think about this. Um, um, I don't have the right to shoot an innocent person with a gun regardless of my ownership status over the gun. So if I steal someone's gun mm -hmm. and I shoot someone with it, I'm still a murderer. It's not because I used the gun in a way where the property rights were limited. It's because I committed an action that used your property, your body, without your permission. Right. So that's the thing. So rights are violated in property by actions. And so property rights limit other people's actions. They don't limit other people's property rights. This is the fundamental point. Okay. okay. Now- that's what I try to get clear in other parts of the book. Coming back down to it, as I said, the non-aggression principle is a stand-in, it's a substitute or is a shorthand way of referring to the whole panoply of libertarian property rights, although it directly refers only to self-ownership. So self-ownership is primary, as Hoppe lays out in his book, which I think you and I even started discussing in previous um, podcast episodes. Um but it's primary because the only way you acquire property rights in 
external objects is number one, we have to recognize and identify that there are external resources in the world, which Mises would call scarce means of action, right? Which we need to employ to get things done in the world and to survive and to live and to perform things. Every action that we take is the employment of a scarce means or some something with our body and usually with other things that is causally interferes in the flow of, of events mm -hmm. to achieve a result in the future that we prefer to happen other than what would happen if we didn't interfere. That's what all human action is. Mm -hmm. So all human action employs these resources. And in society, we prefer to have security in our ability to keep and use these resources so property rights emerge. So the property rights are property rights over these things. And there's only two ways these things are acquired, which I discuss in, in other chapters, which is basically original appropriation, which means the human actor comes across and finds and discovers an unowned resource just out there. And he uses his labor and effort and intellect and creativity to appropriate it, to start using it, to transform it, to, 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 to employ it as a means. And when he does this, he, he, he separates it from the unowned field set of things and it becomes his. Mm -hmm. Or you could acquire it from a previous owner who, who got it by original appropriation mm -hmm. by contract. So in a sense, the old, there's, and there's a third rule, which is, which is not, not of interest here, but you know, that's, that's basically it. It's original appropriation, owning unowned things mm -hmm. and acquiring it by contract from a previous owner. That's it original, so homesteading, you can call it, and contract. But both of those things presuppose I am an actor, a human being moving around the world doing these things. I'm finding things that are unowned. I'm buying things from owners, right, by contract. All that presupposes that I am in control of my own body and I'm already a self-owner. That's why it's more primary and fundamental. Mm. And that's also why the rules of ownership are different. Most people who appreciate the importance and significance of the homesteading notion, uh, well, they, they, do, they, they make a couple of mistakes. Number one, if they're anarchists like I am, they'll say something like um, government-owned property, like say a library or a road, is, you know, because the government is criminal, it's really unowned, so anyone can homestead it. Mm. You know, like, so the bum in the library example, mm. wow, what's wrong with, what's wrong with stopping, what, what's wrong with the bum using the library after all, it's unowned. No, that's not true. The library's not unowned. The roads are not unowned. You could argue the Rocky Mountains are unowned because the government just prevents anyone from going in there and transforming or, you know, sort of wilderness areas. Mm -hmm. They're unowned and they could be homesteaded. But, you know, federal buildings and roads and, and um, transformed areas are owned. They were just either stolen from the original owners or they were purchased by with stolen funds, taxpayer mm -hmm. dollars. Right. Um, so they're owned. They're owned legally by the state, but then the, the rightful owner would be the victims of the state who have a claim on it. So you right. would say the, the taxpayers or the or the rightful owners. So it's not unknown. And the other mistake they make is uh, they say, well, okay, well, if we own for self-owners and if we also own other things and we own the other things because of homesteading, then we must own our bodies because of homesteading. That's the second mistake. But again, as I said, to own anything outside of yourself presupposes that you own yourself already. Yeah. So there must be a different way of coming to own yourself, which is what this chapter is about, mm -hmm. than homesteading. It makes no sense to say we homestead ourselves because 
homesteading pre presupposes in a self-owning actor already. So if, unless you're spiritual and you believe that there's some kind of insolment process where, you know, there's a little mm -hmm. baby angel or a reincarnated soul or something floating down here that sees a body and grabs it and then homesteads it. But that's a spiritual mystical thing and you can't, that's not part of political philosophy, right? And plus it makes no sense. Um, no, there must be a different basis of ownership of your body, homesteading, than homesteading. It can't be homesteading. So what you got to go do is you got to go back another level and say, okay, what's the real issue? The real issue is, as Hoppel points out, is that we are social animals and we are actors in a scarce physical world, which, which means we need to employ scarce means to survive, use our bodies and use other resources in the world. Um, and to the extent that we're social and that we prefer to have cooperation, social cooperation, trade, and we prefer everyone to have peace and prosperity, we, we tend to prefer there to be norms or rules, which are property rights, which allocate and socially assign, okay, who gets to use the resources that we can have conflict over because we want to avoid conflict. So it's all about conflict avoidance. Hmm. So, but when there's a potential for conflict, social norms arise to allocate owners, right? And as I said, for scarce resources, it has to be original appropriation, has to be the primary one. The reason it has to be primary is because you couldn't use a resource in the first place unless you had the right to do it, right? So, and and it, if if someone objects to your homesteading an unowned resource, then they're they're pretending to be the owner because mm -hmm. the only one who can object to my, someone using that resource is the owner. But if it's unowned, no one can object. If he could object, it means he's the owner. Well, how did he come to own it? He didn't do anything with it. I'm the one who found it, not him, which means he's assuming that he can, that, that people can come to own things by mere verbal decree. But if you had, if you had that rule, that things can become to be owned by mere verbal decree, it would reduce conflict because then everyone could claim to own everything, and then you'd you'd be back where we started from. Yeah. You know, uh, war of all against all. Um, so that's why that rule has to be the rule everyone devolves towards. And then contract means once you're the owner, you can get rid of it, you can abandon it. And you can abandon it in someone's favor. That's how contract emerges. So those two rules emerge sort of naturally. But the thing is, because we're trying to find a rule that allows us to use resources and to use them without conflict, because that's the social goal is to come up with a rule that allows us to avoid conflict so that we can use these things peacefully, cooperatively, and everyone, everyone can benefit. Um, the fundamental rule is we need to find the best objective link. It's not really that that homesteading is the is the fundamental uh, criteria for for allocating property allocating property rights so that conflict can be avoided. It's finding an objective link. It's got to be objective because otherwise, like I said, if mere verbal decree was the way that you could own land, then I could say, well, I own I hereby announce that I own Antarctica. No. Yeah. I own the Everglades. I own the moon. But everyone can say that at the same time. So it's not a rule that would it's not a rule that helps us to avoid conflict. It's got to be actual use because when you actually use something and transform it, then there's a historical record and a way to show a connection between someone and that thing. So what we're looking for is a connection, some objective, or as Hoppe would say, using um, more uh, Kantian terms, intersubjectively ascertainable. All that means is everyone can see it, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone can can prove it in an objective way. So we're looking for an objective link that would distinguish 
what we call a better claim or better title between the, the person claiming the resource and the resource and shows he's better, has a better claim to it than everyone else. And in the case of external resources, that's first ownership and then contract. But in the case of your body, it's obviously your, your ability to control it with your will, mm-hmm. right? In fact, everyone engaged in any dialogue or discourse or argument about this, any dispute, everyone is assuming that they're the person that they, whose body they control, that they own that body. Right. Like it's pre, you can't get away from that. Right. Um, I, and in fact, it's self-contradictory for me. Like in, in essence, self-ownership simply means a rejection of slavery, mm-hmm. which, which simply means a rejection of particularizable rules. It means an acceptance of universalizability. What, what, what I mean by that is um, it means that you can't have an argument. You can't give a reason that is just arbitrary. I can't say that I'm your owner. I can't say this. I'm your owner because I'm me and you're you. Because that's not an argument. Mm-hmm. And that's not a way to avoid conflict. Because, if, again, if everyone went into a discussion about how to resolve a potential conflict and said that, you would just walk away fighting again. Right. Right, right. You have to give a reason that's an objective reason, as Hoppe calls it, grounded in the nature of things, which means an objective link. It's like you can't say, I don't own myself, because you're literally summoning your communicative faculties to no, make the statement. Sort of well, yeah. not only that, no one, no one would say that. If I say... I'm your owner. You're my slave and I own you. I'm assuming I own myself because you have to own yourself to right. other things. Okay. So but if but if I'm saying I own myself but you don't own yourself, I have to come up with a reason that there's a distinction because when we enter this arena of intellectual discourse, we're 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 presupposing that we're we're alike in in some ways, right? Yes. We're alike enough to have a conversation, and we're also presupposing – so I'm presupposing that there's something about my nature that gives me the right to own myself. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, as far as we know, you have a similar nature. So whatever gives me the right to own my body, you have the right to own your body. In other words, there's no reason to distinguish, and if you distinguish arbitrarily, again, it's not an argument. It's what we call particularizable. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say there's one exception to what you just said and to what – um um, it, it is possible to have a slave. It's just there has to be a reason given for the slave ownership relationship. So, for example, if I just – you and I are just equally situated and, and I claim dominance over you, there's no basis. I have no basis for distinguishing me from you. Now, you could let's say we have a, a, an older side, like, you know, antebellum, antebellum slavery America. Okay, my reason is I'm white and you're black. Okay, that is a distinction, but is it a relevant distinction? Now, they thought so because they thought being white meant superior mm-hmm. and being black meant inferior. Okay, but we don't believe that as rational, modern, cosmopolitan, individualistic people, mm-hmm. right? So we would we would reject their basis for distinction. We would say, yes, there's a distinction, but it's not relevant. Right. And. I mean, we also reject the distinction that you know, whites are not superior to blacks by virtue of their skin color. It, right. just, it doesn't make any sense. And anyway, even if you're superior, that's vague. What does that even mean? That, that still doesn't mean you have the right to dominate. The reason we have the right to own animals is not because we're superior. It's because they don't have rights, because they don't have the capacity for rights. Or you know, I mean, That's a whole different discussion. 
But the but if you take a fellow human who's a fellow sapient human that you're having a discussion with, they're on an equal footing with you. So that's the fundamental thing. And so then you ask, well, then what is the connection between my body? Well, well it's, a, it's an intimate one. It's an inseparable one. It's that I have the right to use my body. Now, if let's say you let's say you just murdered my family, and I caught you, and I've got you in a in a in a prison. And in, in in I got you in my in my in my base in my in my dungeon, mm-hmm. waiting to decide what to do with you, right? Because you just murdered my family. You've committed aggression, mm-hmm. and then I'm talking to you, and we're we're having a discussion. Now, the people that disagree with Hoppe and his argumentation ethics would say, "Aha, that's a disproof of argumentation ethics." Because Hans Hoppe says that you can't have an argument with your slave without being self contradiction. Blah blah blah. Well, the reason is because in most cases, you're in self-contradiction because you're you're claiming something for yourself that you're not granting to the other person, even though, even though you're similarly situated. Mm. However, if someone commits aggression, now you're not similarly situated. Now you could say, like, if your if your prisoner says, "You need to let me out because I'm a self-owner," and I say, "No, you're not self-owner. You were a self-owner, but you forfeited that right, and now I'm your owner." Mm. And the slave says, well, you're, you're contradicting yourself because you're claiming ownership of yourself, but you're not granting the same right to me. And my response would be, yeah, because I didn't commit murder. <laughs> right. right. That's, right. So that's a, that's a relevant difference. That's a relevant difference. So this is where Rothbard is a little bit um, – his analysis is a little bit misleading at least the way it's worded, when he argues against voluntary slavery contracts and he argues for the inalienability of the will, which I agree with his argument, he argues that it's because it's impossible to alienate your will. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I would subtly distinguish it is this. It is true that with current technology, it's impossible to alienate your will. Mm-hmm. We could imagine a future technology where you could alienate. You could implant a device in your head that makes you remote control by someone else. And right. that's called zombicide or something. And that's a whole different issue. Uh, but under current technology, it's impossible to alienate your will. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible to forfeit your rights. It doesn't mean it's impossible to be a slave. It just means that you can't alienate your rights by merely talking. That's all it means. Mm. So if I make a promise to be your slave, this is, this is my different, my disagree right. with Walter Block, and I've got a podcast or two on this. Um, Walter thinks that if you own it, you can sell it, which is wrong. He, that's mm-hmm. a, that's another confusion, which is easy to see again once you sort these things out and look at them thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I've rambled long enough, but you can see how all these things tie together. And once you are forced to clarify in response to getting close to these difficult issues, yeah. you have to clarify your concepts. And so the you know libertarianism went from intuitive, natural primitive societies, people getting along and having their own stuff, rough rules, rough justice, then the idea of liberty or freedom as an intuitive rebellion against, you know, invaders or state overweening state power or obvious injustices, then getting more and more refined to the idea of property rights, and then getting refined in the libertarian era to the idea that the only way to, the only rights are rights to, um, be free from the initiation of force or aggression, non-aggression axiom, then the non-aggression principle, 
And then people simplistically say, well, non-aggression principle means, um, oh, that's funny. I did this. I'm up. Yeah, uh, that's where I came from. <laughs> I think it's a it's a new thing in uh, Skype. I mean, Zoom. Anyway, um, and, and then you, but then you're forced to clarify even that and say, well, non-aggression principle is not really the core of libertarianism. It's just a shorthand for self-ownership rights, which is the basis of extending it to other rights. So really, that then you recognize, well, the core is really the property rights. And what's the function of property rights? It's to help us avoid conflict. And that means there's only certain rules that could pass argumentative muster in a civilized dialogue. And a dialogue would be more trying to figure out the right, the right rules that help accomplish the goal of reducing conflict. So then you have self-ownership based upon direct control of your body and then ownership of other things based upon original appropriation and contract mm-hmm. with I wouldn't even call it an exception. It's just that you you can lose the right to these things by voluntary action, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I have an apple, I can voluntarily give it to you. Mm-hmm. So now I've lost ownership because I I abandoned it mm-hmm. to you. Um, or if I harm you, now I owe you some 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 restitution. Mm-hmm. So I have to give you the apple to pay you back. So my action caused me to lose that. By the same token, if I start attacking you with no call, with no reason, I've lost the right to be free and secure in my body. Now you have the right to use my body. In other words, you have the right to defend yourself. You have the right to hit me, right. to stop me from hitting you. Whereas before, you didn't have the right to hit me. So all these things are things as an acting agent, owning my body and owning other things means or not, even not only other things, like if I own, if I'm using someone else's gun, like it doesn't matter. If if I'm an acting human employing means to harm you, or to do something that changes the status, that's how rights are changed. Right. Yeah. Oh man, it's so. It's, I like how you said that. That you get you have to get very clear on your terms the closer you get to the essential nature of these interrelations. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, 1, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash what is money. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chambers encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send Chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. 
You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Um, and so I'll try to say some things here that hopefully make sense. Yeah. The right to self-defense is the other side of the coin of the non-aggression principle. Something like that, because when you have uninitiated aggression... The, the uninitiated aggressor is forfeiting their self-ownership through action, right? They're saying- So so, 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 so here's the way. So the non-aggression principle is just another way of saying that I own my body. Yes. Which means I have the right to, to consent to someone using it or I have the right to, to exclude. Which means that if I say no, if I exclude yes. you and you use it anyway, now they're using my resource without my permission. Exactly. And I have the right to use, I have now the right to use their resources without their permission, right? Yes. Yeah. So I would say, so in in, in effect, that means that they forfeited their rights to. Um, another way to look at it is what I say in my estoppel argument, which is chapter I think five. Yeah. Um, um, it, they have basically consented to the rule. It's okay to use someone's resource even if they say no. Right. So they're doing that to me. So if I try to use force to stop them, and if they say. I object. Right. Actually, speak louder yeah, than words. But, but you, you, exactly. So yeah. I could say, well, but you've already laid down the rule in this interaction between us that you've already accepted that you believe that it's okay to use someone's resource, even though they're saying no. So I'm just going by the rules you've set down, man. You know, right. in other words, they're a stop or prevented from, from objecting. Yeah. And if you're prevented from objecting, that's the same thing as consenting. Mm hmm. Or another way to say it is by by committing an act of aggression against me, they have in effect consented to a proportional retaliation against them. Mm, mm -hmm. That's where proportionality comes from. Because right, right, you know, right. if I just if I just slap you in the face, yeah, you know, that's rude and it's yeah. it's aggression technically. And if you slap me back, I can't really complain. But if you take a knife out and stab me, then you're doing far more to me than I did to you. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I'm assuming some things about the context because yeah, sometimes yeah. a slap, a slap would would merit, would merit lethal force. You know, if it's the prelude to a big fight, mm. and you you're going to just take out the threat right away. But you know, in most cases, you know, your your girlfriend slaps you in the face because you were an asshole. Mm -hmm. You're not going to stab her, mm -hmm. and if you do, you're 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 committing aggression yourself. Yeah. 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 It's um, the other thing you hit on there. I think this was Rothbard too saying something to the effect of you can't permanently sell yourself into slavery. I shouldn't say sell. You can't commit yourself to slavery because you can always rescind the commitment, right? It's you, yes. Uh, unless there was a transfer of probably if someone paid you, then it's not slavery, right? Then it's wage. You're working for a well. And and I think, I think, I think he's kind of, this is where I think his analysis gets confused. So, um, what he's he's recognizing two things in there that I think he doesn't make that explicit because it, again he was early on this stuff. I think Hoppe clarified it later with this 
idea that you direct control your body. That's sort of implicit in Rothbard because when Rothbard is saying that the reason you can't sell yourself into slavery is because you can't alienate your will, I think he was implicitly recognizing the importance of the will as the direct link between you and your body. In other words, he was sort of he he had an intuition. He, he recognized that the reason you own your body is because you directly control it. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, I think he's wrong that he's wrong that it means you could never be a slave because again, you could forfeit your rights as a criminal, but only th- only still, through action, right? Not through only through an action. Yeah. It's through an action. It's not through words. Yes. So he he's on the right track. Um, where he went off track was with this thing about um. Yeah, if you pay, and when Walter Block makes, I think the same mistake. Um, um, what was the, the, the classic example? Rothbard gives this example of debtor's prison. Okay, so in the old days, and again, Rothbard's contract theory clarifies this too. So Rothbard himself failed to take his own contract theory insights to this example. So he he was so pioneering. On all this, he was pioneering on rights, and he's pioneering on contract theory. But he, he you know, he he had a few missteps because he was he was the first. Oh, sure. <laughs> I'm not not criticizing him at all. I mean, yeah. I'm sure. By the way, if he was he had lived a few more years and heard his his devoted students talk, tell him, oh, here's what here's what oh, you slightly went off. He I, I, like I know he would have been anti-IP. Yeah. I know he uh, yeah. he would have. Oh, you're right. I was one of those in there, but um. Um, so what he says is that if I loan you money now for you to repay me with interest in a year and you don't pay me back in a year, then you, Rothbard says you've committed implicit theft. And so theoretically debtor's prison would be justified, which it used to be used in the old days. If you don't repay a debt, um, you could go to prison for it. And by the way, the reason for that is under the conventional view of contracts, contracts are viewed as binding obligations. And an obligation is something in the law. And if you don't perform the obligation, you're technically violating someone's rights. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's similar to a tort or to a crime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you commit a crime, you can go to prison. Um, that's the idea. Um, and Rothbard's theory of contract obliterates that. It, it doesn't view contracts as binding obligations. It views them as transfers of title to owned resources, which he even made a few mistakes there because he wasn't a lawyer. Okay, that's fine. He wasn't a legal theorist. And his 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 colleague who helped him develop this was William Z. Ebers, who also wasn't a lawyer. So they made a couple of... Well, it was crude. It needed some refinement, which is what I tried to do because I'm a lawyer. So like, you know, but it was pioneering, pathbreaking work. Once you view contracts as title transfers to owned resources, then if you fail to transfer title to something because you don't own it, it's not a rights violation. It's just an impossibility, right? Mm-hmm. It, it would be like if I said, if it would be like if I said, if you give me a dollar, uh, I will give you this square circle in my pocket. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no square circle. It's, it's it's just a nugatory statement. It doesn't. Yep. There's nothing to transfer. Or if I said, "Here's a box. Inside this box is something. Whatever's inside this box, I'm going to sell you for ten dollars." 
in the law, that's called a sale of hope, something like a sale of the hope. Okay, that's legal. There's nothing wrong with that. I can, you know, it's gambling. You, you can buy this box from me, taking the chance that whatever is inside of it, you own it. It may be nothing. It may be a dollar. It may be, it may be a coin. It may be a diamond. You know, it may be sand. I don't know. And if I give you this and you gave me the dollar and I give you the box and you open it and there's a kitten in it or nothing in it, um, your rights were violated, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the point is, this idea of implicit theft, he just made this up. I mean, it makes what I don't know what implicit theft is. I think mm-hmm. what he, if you ask Walter, who's the greatest exponent of this view now, to clarify, so I said, for example, you give me $1,000 now. I promise to pay you $1,100 in a year. That's $1,000 with 10% interest, right? But they're two different things. There's the 1000 now and the 1100 in the future. To make it clear, it could be two different things. Like I could say, you give me a hammer and in a year, I'm going to give you a wrench. Mm-hmm. Okay? They don't have to be the same thing. And in fact, the 1000 is not the same as the 11. So let's make it a hammer and a wrench. Mm-hmm. So you give me a hammer now because I need a hammer. And in one year, I'm going to use my profits. I'm going to make or buy a wrench. I'm going to give you a wrench. Right. A spanner. Um, and so in a year, I've I've just messed up. I don't have it. I've I've lost everything. My business didn't work out. I don't have a wrench. So you say, hey, where's my wrench? I say, sorry, I don't own a wrench. Now Rothbard would have to begrudgingly concede that, well, that's implicit theft. And I would say, Well, what's what is it implicit theft of? Is it implicit theft of the hammer mm. that he gave me or of the wrench that I'm not giving him? And their first answer is, well, it's implicit theft of, of the wrench. I say, but the wrench doesn't exist. How can you steal something that doesn't exist? It doesn't make any sense. There's there's nothing that I'm stealing that the other guy owns. Mm-hmm. Nothing I'm using that the other guy owns. It's, and then, so, I, I, same thing with the $1,100. I said, Walter, I don't have $1,100. What am I stealing? He says, okay, it's the original $1,000, mm-hmm. original hammer. I said, yeah, but... When you gave me the original $1,000, didn't you give it to me so I could use it to go purchase goods for my new business? So didn't I have to own it outright to spend it on someone else? He would say, no, it was conditional. I said, no, it wasn't conditional. This this is the other mistake. So the the one the, the original loan thing is it's actually not loaned. It's actually given, mm-hmm. transferred. It has to be transferred for me to spend it. Right. right. If I can't... It, 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 if it's conditional, if I have to wait a year to find out whether I really own it, then I can't right. use it. And the whole thing makes no sense. It's got to be 100% unconditional. This is what people don't understand. The contract is two independent and separate title transfers. Mm-hmm. There's no relationship between them except that the only reason I made this transfer is because you made this one. Mm-hmm. But one transfer is a present transfer of the, of the, of the hammer or the $1,000. It's unconditional. It has to be unconditional, which means... The guy you give it to is the complete owner, and no later action a year down the road can retroactively go back and make that theft. Right. Because right. property rights always, this is the point Hoppe makes, property rights always have to be present-based. They can't wait for future conditions. Otherwise, they're not operable. We would sit around and die waiting. This is the problem with parts of some types of socialism is that you don't know who the owner is. Control is always control. allocated. Yeah, always has to be determinable now, and that's it. It's settled and done. So 
the property rights system has to say who owns this thousand dollars, and it's it's the it's the borrower. He owns it because it was given to him to spend. Right. In exchange, what he did was he gave a future title transfer. But the difference is the present title transfer is in the present, and the thousand dollars or the hammer exists now. So the title to that is owned by A, and transfers to B. That's it. That transfer is done. Yeah. And you can think of that like a gift. If it's just a gift, it's just a single one-way title transfer. I give you a hammer. It's done because mm -hmm. the hammer exists. But the second transfer that was the exchange is a future one. But future things are always uncertain things. Mm -hmm. And uncertain things don't exist yet. The future doesn't exist yet. So I'm giving you something that you and I both know doesn't exist yet and may never exist because I might die mm. or 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 I might fail or I might be bankrupt, right? Or maybe the money system might change or maybe some play will eat up all the hair. I don't know. You know, does, does, he don't get, know. does he get a lien on the, the man that's supposed to produce the wrench or the $1,100? Does the lender at least get a lien on their assets? Say he doesn't have enough money to produce a full wrench or pay back the full $1,100. Well, 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 that, 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 gets into, that gets into the terms of the contract. Okay, so um, if if all we have is a simple handshake deal with just these two things, mm -hmm. then the question is, how does the legal system fill in the the implicit terms of the agreement? Now, if you had a long seventeen page contract, it, it would it would probably say, and on the due date, if I don't have the wrench or if I don't have the uh, eleven hundred dollars then you have to pay me the equivalent value of that from your other property. Hmm. And if you don't have any other property, then you have to pay it to me in the future when you do get property with accumulated interest. Uh, those would be the normal terms people would negotiate for. And if they didn't negotiate for it, probably the legal system would, would have to come up with what's called supplementive or default rules to fill in the gaps, gap fillers. Mm -hmm. And you would go by custom and the conventional understanding and by, by tradition and what people normally do. So yes, I think that would be either explicitly negotiated as part of the deal or it would be um, an, an implied implied thing. Just like when you go to a restaurant, you don't have a, a, a verbal negotiation with every, you know, about who's going to pay and what the prices are. Even if you don't see the menu and you just order a hamburger, the implicit understanding is that you've agreed to pay a reasonable price for the hamburger, and when they tell you what it is, you pay it. Mm -hmm. Now, if they ask for $1,000, you would say, well, that wasn't agreed to. They'll say, well, nothing was agreed to. They'll say, well, there are certain implied terms, which is we know what the typical prices for hamburgers are in restaurants and you know that kind of thing. And if that ever got, by the way, if that ever got to be a real problem, people would start negotiating it ahead of time to make sure no one was surprised. But right. it's not really a problem, so it's not really a problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's nothing wrong with implicit, implicit contracts or tacit tacit agreement. Nothing wrong with that at all. And in fact, it's impossible not to have that because every contract, except the most simple and bare, like a, a contemporaneous exchange of two owned goods, like you know. A dollar for a newspaper, and then the guys walk away, and it's done, mm -hmm. right? Um, except for that, every contract is always incomplete, and it's always incomplete because language is not perfectly precise. Mm. And even if you paid Wall Street lawyers seventeen thousand dollars to negotiate it, 
there's always something that could happen that was an unimagined event that you would have to decide what to do in that case. And so every contract implicitly or explicitly has a dispute resolution provision where you have to have a way to resolve the dispute, even though it wasn't specified. So that means you usually go to an arbitrator or a mm -hmm. party who looks at the situation and tries to do their best and comes up with an answer and you both agree to follow it. I mean, you know, so there's always gap fillers. There's always supplemental provisions and things because like that. The, because of the problem of interpretation, right? That there's always going to be a situation that doesn't fit the contract. And then how do you interpret the terms? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, first, if, if the value of the contract is very high, you know, millions and millions of dollars, then it, then you invest more of your money to hire lawyers to try to cover more of that to get the uncertainty lowered. But yeah. even then, you always have to, at the final thing, you have to have, okay, we just have to go to a third party and let them let them decide and we have to abide by it. There's just no other way. Um, and for a very, you know, for, for, for a thousand dollar contract, you just go with the default rules and you assume that there's a 99.9% .9 chance that nothing outside of the range of, of expected things is going to happen and all the yeah. other things we know what's going to happen and we're willing to take this risk. And that affects the interest rate, by the way, you know, so- the interest rate I'm going to charge you is based partly upon the risk, and the risk is based upon the uncertainty, uh -huh. and that's why a, that's why a more developed legal system reduces the uncertainty, uh -huh. reduces interest rates, that makes the economy more efficient, productivity higher. I mean, that's yeah. why it advanced. You know, it all dovetails together. But in any case, the point is, Rothbard said, if you don't repay the eleven hundred dollars, then you're an implicit thief, and so technically you're a thief. So technically, you're, it would be justified to send you to prison, but he knew he didn't like that result. So he said, but that would be disproportionate punishment. So mm. that's why, So it's like, well, that's just sort of an easy patch. <laughs> so his patch should have been to realize that there is no theft. Mm. Now, you're right, though. If I have other property, then we could assume that, that uh, an ancillary implicit term would be, okay, then you have to. You have right. to pay the value of it from selling. Other, and if you don't have anything, then you still owe the money going forward. Right. It's just whenever you because, come into money. Because through the action, you have, I guess, laid down the rule that that person's property was yours, right? By not repaying your obligation. No, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think of it that way. I would think of it as just, it, it was an implicit, I would think of it this way. When we made the original agreement, there was not just one title transfer. There was thousands of title transfers. Some of them were just not stated. So like, I'm transferring to you $1,100 in the future, parentheses, if I have it. Because mm -hmm. that's always an implied condition because we know we both know yeah. the future is uncertain. Yeah. And then there's a second one saying, and if I didn't have it the first day, I owe, I owe it to you out of my other property if I have mm -hmm. it, if I have it. And then there's an, a third one that says, and if I'm totally penniless on the due date, then I transfer to you $1,100 with interest accruing whenever I get that. So like there's a, there's just a layering of title transfers. Mm -hmm. They're all, con they're all conditional though. That's the thing. And if the first one comes about, then the other ones disappear because I've already satisfied, you know, they're all, cause yeah. they're all ifs, ifs, ifs. And there could be other ones in between. So halfway through the year, if I'm really worried about your ability to repay me and if I see, Hey, your snow cone stand that you're funding, I don't see anyone out there. So, Halfway through the year, I might say, I need 
I want you to pay me the $500 you have left right now because I think I'm never going to get it back. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, was that an implicit understanding that you could cut the, call the loan early, basically, mm-hmm. to cut your losses? So that, that's just a question of whether that's what you that's what you guys agreed to or would have agreed to. And in most cases, probably not. Uh, but but you could say, like, let's say it was a big loan. Like, I give you $10 million to build a new, you know, rest uh, a new uh, sports equipment sports facility or something right Dana new a new gym and you know you're supposed to repay me with interest in a year but you know halfway through the year I see that you're just taking the money and going off to Bermuda and spending it on yachts I would say that's it I'm calling it because you're you're using in other words, you could put restrictions on the way the property is used. I could say, mm-hmm. I'm giving you 10 million bucks, but uh, if I see you using it other than for these commercial purposes, then you're giving a second title transfer of the money back to me. You know, right? But that's that that introduces complexity, complication, and cost, and that makes the deal. Which means you can't charge as much interest that way. So, like, it's all a trade-off. It's just a business yeah. deal. Yeah. Um, um, and you can even say that it's that it's it's theft if if there's a clearly stated condition that the money can only be used for A, B, and C purposes, and then the borrower uses it for something totally unrelated. At that moment in time, he's reached, he's triggering a condition which says that now the money ownership transfers back to the lender. Mm-hmm. And now he's you. So now the borrower is in possession of money. Now it's owned back by the lender. Right. And now he's using it for his own purposes. That's actually That's theft. theft. Gotcha. That's an act of theft. Gotcha. Um, and now, of course, what's going to happen in a deal like this? You're not going to give the guy $10 million. Right. You're going to loan it to him, but you're going to hold, you're going to give it to him in batches yeah. to monitor the product. You're going to say, okay, yeah. you get a million this month, and then you show me what you're doing, and I'll give you yeah. the next minute. Make sure you're yeah. I mean, But this is just normal risk management and the way you do deals. Yeah, for sure. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating Lightning Payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States. 
And it is not a secret that the medical system in the US has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Um, all right, one more little excerpt here and a question, then I'll let you jump off. Um, you go on to write, all political systems assign owners to resources according to some assignment rule. Yeah. What sets libertarianism apart is its unique property assignment rule. The rule that specifies that individuals, not the state, are owners of their own bodies and other external resources. So it struck me too that you said, you know, the purpose of private property is to reduce conflict. Um, other things are, the purpose of other things is to reduce conflict as well, right? Like like speech, normative structures. I mean, I guess private property is somewhat of a normative structure. I don't know if you call it a normative structure or a social institution. Um, and we're saying political system is assigning resources according to an assignment rule are we saying that this is these are just the rational means of determining what pieces of uh, uh, I'm trying to the word territory is coming to mind here like animals are territorial it seems like we are rationally putting human territoriality into a, a rational container something like that that lets us sort out our conflicts nonviolently right in a way that's more I guess based on some universal rule and ideally a way that's more conflict resolution that's more productive, less violent, less destructive. I mean, is, is that the point of political systems? Is that what we're trying to do here is just well, toward ourselves? Okay, so the way I would sort it all out. So territoriality, I wouldn't say humans are territorial. I would simply say that we are actors and we, we need to employ scarce means. Mm. So, I, I mean, I guess territoriality is sort of... Um, um, of animals is an outcome of that fact that they need to use resources and they need mm -hmm. to have some security and the ability to use it, to use it. I mean, I need to eat my meal without you putting your nose in my bowl. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I can't eat my meal. So it's a territoriality, but that just means there's a, there's a, there's a need for humans acting in the world to employ scarce means of action. Um, and because of that, and because we're social and because we have empathy for each other, which affects our values. And that's where we go from fact to value, right? So our values are that we have preferences. So most of us who are not sociopaths prefer, um, well, everyone's self-interested. So they want prosperity for themselves. And mm -hmm. to, to achieve prosperity, they need to be able to act and to employ resources. So they, they, they want the they want the ability to control resources. So that's just pure possession. That means manipulating things to, to do things. Um, but they also, and because of that, they also would prefer to have the right to do those things, which means they prefer to, there to be a social institution of property and property 
obviously property is or norms. So property rights system is, is a social institution that emerges where property rights or property norms um, are widely adhered to in society. We prefer that because that gives us not only the actual that, – that enhances our ability to use these resources because mm -hmm. then I don't have to like put a fence up around it and have armed guards all the time. I mean you, know, you can count to some degree upon social respect and institutional support to minimize the, the chance that other human actors would impede your ability to use your resources. Like, so that's why everyone's selfishly interested in that. But because we're also mostly social and most of us that are not sociopaths have empathy for other people, we like to live with other people. We like to be able to trade with other people. We like to be able to learn from other people. And we like it when other people are also successful and happy. Um, and by the way, the people that are like that tend to get more respect from other people because there's a, there's a mutuality there. You know? mm -hmm. So if you tend to have a reputation for being a decent guy who does have respect for property rights, then you're the type of guy who's going to get more respect from others. So it's sort of because we're social creatures, this is how these things emerge, right? So th that's what the purpose of these property rights are. But, but the point is this, when I say that all social systems or all governments have a property rights allocation scheme or rule, all I mean is that every, every system has property rights. Mm -hmm. Every system has a law in effect that specifies who owns what. It's just that most systems don't specify them in a way that's compatible with the, the purpose of these rights, which is to reduce conflict. Because the only way to do that is to have these rights based upon self-ownership, the non-aggression principle right, yeah. and original appropriation and contract. Otherwise, those are the only three that are those are the only three that are that are actually compatible with the goal of, of what property rights are for, which is to reduce conflict. Yeah. When you have a state system emerge, they they they're based upon these core rights because the most systems of the world are based upon these 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 evolved private law systems, say the Roman law or the Roman right. law, which are roughly based upon these things. That's why most systems are libertarian-ish because you know most systems prohibit murder; they prohibit right. theft. Yeah, which murder prohibiting murder means self ownership. Yeah, prohibiting theft means property rights arising from original appropriation and contract. Right. It's, it's just that they make exceptions. They're not consistent. So it's, they'll say, unless unless the state makes an exception saying, but you you own your property, but you have to give ten percent you have to give ten percent of it to us every year in form of taxes. Yeah. But 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 that rule it introduces conflict because it it's not based upon the other three. It's a deviation from the other three. Yeah. So my point is libertarians often say that, oh well, libertarians believe in private property rights. It's like, well, not exactly, because every system believes in property rights. It's just our rules are different. Mm. Well, our rules are just more consistent. Like mm. every system accepts murder should be illegal, theft should be illegal, except for when the state does it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we just don't have the exceptions we, we, right. because we really want to reduce conflict and therefore respect rights and have justice be, be, be achieved. So that's where I was going to go is like... The state is this territorial monopoly on violence. It seems to be inclined towards expansion and imperialism when it's, especially when it's the superpower. Um, you know, it, it's it's enshrining the institution of private property, sort of, but I guess it's because it comes from these evolved norms that are yeah. antecedent to the state structure itself. 
but then it makes exceptions for itself, as in the right. case of taxation, conscription, et cetera. Um, and, and by the way, that's inevitable. So once the state sets itself up as the ultimate and final arbiter of matters of law and justice, then it's impossible to imagine that this agency wouldn't have a bias in its own favor. Of course. And start making exceptions in its own favor. Yeah. It's just it's it's just a natural outcome of a genuine monopoly. Yeah. Um, uh, which is the intuition most people have when they support antitrust laws, which they're wrong about because on the free market there are no true monopolies. Mm. But their insight is that when you have a more or less genuine monopoly, then bad things happen, which is true. But it's true of the state because that's the real monopoly. Because they outlaw competitors and they force you to participate and fund their system. So that's a real monopoly. And once you have that and they, they're they the ultimate decider of law and justice, they're going to corrupt law and justice. Yeah, of course, they're going to build upon the – and by the way, no – it's just like people say, um, we I believe in limited government. Again, that's another misleading phrase because there is no such thing as an unlimited government. Every government is limited mm-hmm. by nature. Yeah, there's no such thing as omnipotence, right? I mean – Every even even North Korea and 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 USSR at its heyday were were not unlimited, um, and they were as Mises kind of pointed out. You know how like socialists say, well, you can't point at the USSR as an example of showing that socialism ha- fails because real socialism hasn't been tried. But in a way. They're right. They're just right from the other direction. I mean, Mises would say, yeah, real socialism has not been tried because if you had full socialism, everyone would just be dead. <laughs> yeah, right. So right. they always allow some degree of private gray market, black market activities, some degree of private property. You have to to survive. It's just that they throttle it and strangle it and you know they make everyone yes. poor. Yeah. But you, all, you never have full socialism just like you never have totally unlimited government. Right. Um, just like they, they never – totally get rid of the core private law that has always been there and is always the basis of some little trades and things like that yeah. and possessing their life. So so every system is is has a libertarian core with different levels and layers and incrustations of exceptions and distortions of it. Mm. And libertarians just believe to expand that core to make it everything, mm. whereas everyone else believes they want to keep tacking on the welfare state and this and that and they think this little, this little engine of, of productivity at the core is going to keep making enough for them to parasi- parasitic right. take off of, right? And they're right. Unfortunately, capitalism is so true. Capitalism is so uh, uh, so productive yeah. that they can do so much and keep keep getting away with all this crap. I mean, you know, they're 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 inflating so much, and we don't see as much price inflation as you would expect. And I think it's because the economy keeps countering that with increasing productivity gains. Mm-hmm. Imagine what we would be like if we didn't have in- inflating money supply. We would probably have, you know, twenty five percent growth every year or something. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be crazy. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that's a great point. That I mean, even in radical communism or Marxism, right, where you have the abolition of private property, there's still a class of individuals inside that society that own and control the resources effectively so even when even when they totally abolish it it still exists right <laughs> exactly it's not never totally abolished it's sort yeah. of just made less efficient because you have government agencies but then they become sort of the, the kind of quasi-capitalists trying to make their own profit in a sense 
It's right. just that the incentives are all distorted. But you know, like Hoppe points out in Democracy, yeah, the the legal owners or rulers of the country are the political class in a sense, or the deep state, or whatever. But th- these political rulers are only in there for four years at a time, or whatever. So their time horizon is shorter. If you had a monarchy, a, a small monarchy in a small city-state, it's still not ideal, but at least the monarch has a longer time horizon because he owns right. the country. He can His kids can inherit it. So he wants to have policies that preserve the value of the country. So the policies he would adopt would be closer to those that would emerge in a truly mm. anarchist society uh, than, than do in democracy where the leader is just – want to plunder the the future for the benefit of their present right uh cronies and constituencies you know yeah no that's a great point uh reminded of that quote that every public election is an advanced auction on stolen goods so you avoid that in a monarchy i suppose okay good sir i've kept you long enough um again the book is legal foundations of a free society uh we barely got into chapter four You've got a lot of good stuff in here, um, and we'll have you back on to talk about some more of it. Uh, Stefan, thank you for doing this. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.